All right, all right, all right. Find your seat and sit in it. All right. Uh, listen, other than hand out people, you, know, you guys keep doing what you're doing. Uh, listen, we are so excited for First Wednesday. I want to give a special shout out to all the students in the house. That's right. That's right. Uh, and so, man, we are we're excited. Students, I'm so stinking proud of every one of you guys, you teenagers. I love you. Uh, I know I don't see you guys as much as Nate does, but I love you more than he does. All right. So just remember that. I'm just kidding. I don't think that's possible. All right. Let's, uh, we're going to jump into Matthew 5 tonight. Uh, and th- we are going to break the rule tonight, actually. Uh, we have done well for the last two and a half years. We have, u- we have done one chapter in one week. Uh, we, we worked through Romans. Now we are in Matthew and we are going to break that rule tonight because there is no way on God's green earth we are going to get through a whole chapter of Matthew 5 tonight. And so... Uh, matter of fact, we're going to do our best to get through eight verses. Uh, and so hang on. Um, but the good news is I feel like preaching a little bit tonight. And so uh, I, I usually am, am pretty, pretty uh, it's Wednesday nights, first Wednesdays are usually pretty teachy. Tonight, I feel like there's just, I feel like we're going to preach a little bit. And so get to Matthew 5. I gave you some handouts because there is so mi- there, there's so much happening in Matthew 5 when Jesus presents his sermon. So to kind of catch you up on what happens in Matthew 5, Jesus has, uh, if you remember through the other weeks that we've been in, Jesus, uh, it's kind of his birth and then it moves into his ministry. Uh, He is baptized by John the Baptist, if you remember that. And then he's sent into the wilderness uh, by the spirit, if you remember that. He comes back from the wilderness empowered by the spirit and that is when he starts his ministry. He goes into the synagogues and he's teaching and he's doing all of those things. And then uh, shortly after that, he goes to the Mount where we see the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus' first sermon that we see in the Bible. And the reason that I paused and I kind of just asked God, I was like, all right, God, I'm reading Matthew 5. And I'm like, this is impossible. Like, there's no way we're going to do this chapter in one night. And one of the things I feel like I put on my heart is, first of all, like his, his, his agenda is better than ours, right? So it's like, uh, I like to have a plan and stick to it. And he's like, you know, your plan doesn't matter to me. And I was like, all right, cool. All right. So as long as we got that out of the way. Secondly, uh, that we should, this is Jesus' first sermon or message to his disciples that wasn't what we would consider to be an exegesis. So it wasn't him in the, uh, in the synagogue's teaching from the text. This is his first inspired words in and of himself. That wasn't just him teaching out of the Old Testament. And as I was just praying about it and letting God deal with my heart over the fact that he was going to ruin my plan, uh, I, was, I was encouraged by the fact that he uh, led me to believe and understand that um, we need to give honor to Christ's words. And if that means we move slower, then we move slower. I was telling my wife on the way here, she said, how long do you think it's going to take you to do Matthew 5? And I said, I think Matthew 5 through 7 will probably take us till August. <laughs> uh, so whatever. All right, so we're going to do it. So let, let's, uh, let's jump in. All right, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Stop. All right. So we want to understand what's happening here. Jesus has the crowds following him. So the crowds are they're with him. They're moving with him. So he, he, he recognizes the crowds and he goes up on the mount. And as he gets up to the mount, he sits down. And, and what, we, what we know to un, and understand by reading the text and understanding how he would have sat down with his disciples is, is you picture Jesus sitting in the circle, sitting at the center or on the edge of the circle. His disciples are sitting around him. And he sits down to teach them, which is how the rabbi would have taught. So a rabbi would not have taught necessarily in a situation like this, where rows of chairs and one person stands at the front. We would, they would have sat in a circle and they would have, they would have learned together what the text had to say. And so he sits in the circle. He sits down with his disciples and they all sit down. Now I think it's very interesting because I want to point out to you the difference between the disciples and the crowd. Because the disciples come to him and I think it can be defined by their posture. The disciples come to him 
And they, they see Jesus sit down and with an eagerness, they sit down with him because they're, they're here to learn from him, right? So they, they come in and, and they sit down. They, they, they wanna be part of what Jesus is doing. But when we look at the crowd, they're standing on the outskirts. And I think it's so interesting that you can quickly understand the difference between disciples and crowds when you look at their willingness to be close to Christ. And so here are the disciples, they're sitting with Jesus. And, and I think what, the way that I would communicate it is we're looking at the disciples and the disciples, Jesus was the destination. To the crowd, Jesus was a stop along the way to their destination. To the disciples, Jesus was the whole idea. To the crowd, Jesus was just an idea that they wanted to see would fit into their category of living. To the disciples, Jesus was everything, but to the crowd, Jesus was something they weren't even sure was real yet. To the disciples, they're all in, they're bought in. Jesus, everything you're gonna give me is what I'm believing in right now. And to the crowd, Jesus was just, I don't know if we're gonna buy into this thing just yet. Maybe I can catch a healing on the side. And Jesus sits with his disciples. One is here for this, but the other group is here to see about this. Both get to listen, but listen to me, only one of them gets to have intimate relationship. I'm gonna say it again. Both get to listen, only one experiences the relationship with Jesus. And that is and still remains the difference in our churches today. As you have the disciples, those who are genuinely being discipled by Jesus, in a, in a process of growing in him, we're gonna look at in just a minute, and then you have the crowd, which are those that are close enough to hear the message, but not close enough to have their life changed. And, and if you can take a moment of self-reflection and go, I think I'm close enough to hear the message, but I don't know that it's ever changed my life, then I wanna invite you out of the crowd and into the circle. Because that's where true life is changed. And he goes into what we call the Beatitudes. If you've been in the church world, you know the Beatitudes. It's the Sermon on the Mount, how he starts it. And the Beatitudes is a representation. It's a word that means a state of great joy or happiness. But it's, a, it's intrinsically deeper than that. It's more than just happiness because I, I think that we've lost the word happiness. Matter of fact, in your, in your notes, there's a quote from Dr. Uh, Dr. Alan Ross and he says, perhaps it would be helpful at the beginning to deal briefly with, his, with this word blessed. There is a desire today to translate the word with happy, but that does not seem to capture all that is intended here in the text, primarily because modern usage of the word happy has devalued it. This term is an exclamation of the inner joy and peace that comes with being right with God. Happiness may indeed be part of it, but it is a happiness that transcends what happens in the world around us, a happiness that comes to the soul from being favored by God. This is why it can call for rejoicing under intense persecution. In some ways, the Lord's declaration of blessed is a pledge of divine reward for the inner spiritual character of the righteous. In other ways, it is his description of the spiritual attitude and state of people who are right with God. So I want to make sure we understand blessed because we're going to say blessed or blessed a number of times as we segue into these verses. And to, to, to clearly understand what Jesus is about to describe. See, if you just read Matthew 5, matter of fact, we'll just do that. We'll do it right now. Let's read Matthew 5 verses 2 through 11. It's not on your paper. You got to use your Bible for that. All right. I gave you the paper so you weren't flipping through your Bible every 10 minutes here in just a second, so, uh, or 10 seconds, really. Anyways, all right. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall call, be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so, the, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus unravels this list of things and he's, and he's creating a differentiation. He's saying, these people are blessed and you're blessed when you're in these categories. And for the record, none of them are good, right? It's like, blessed are those who mourn. Like, oh dear God, 
right? Like, blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Like, blessed, like, he's not like, blessed are those who are rich. Like, he's blessed, or, like, he, he creates a cat. So, you're blessed or blessed, uh, intrinsically happy, deep in your soul is favor from God. Why? Because you're poor in spirit. Perfect. And then for each one of those categories, he makes a promise. So if you look at it, blessed are the people in this category because they will receive this thing. And that's his template for how he communicates the Beatitudes. And that's what I'm going to get into you tonight. But the thing is, is he goes, he goes so much deeper than what we read on the surface. And if you've read Matthew 5 before, you've read this and you're like, sounds great. Like, I'm glad, like, cool. And you probably moved on because you were like, I got to get this reading plan in for the day. But we want to slow down because we need to see what Jesus is doing. And to truly understand what Jesus is doing, we have to go to Isaiah 61. Because in Isaiah 61, we see the prophet Isaiah make a declaration. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair or heaviness. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, if you go to Luke chapter four, before the Beatitudes get preached, now we're, like, it doesn't, we don't see this in Matthew, but we see it in Luke. Before Jesus preaches on the Beatitudes, in Luke chapter four, he's in the temple, and that's where we see Luke 4, 16 through 21, and read what he says about the prophet Isaiah. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up and as, and as was his custom. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to pro- proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what is he doing? He's quoting Isaiah 61, right? Now what's interesting is then he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Like no explanation, nothing. He sits down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And think about Jewish culture for a second. Think about a people group who have never not known what it was like to not be under persecution. Think of a people group who have suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered and have been longing and longing and longing and longing for the day that something would show up in their life and it would, it would bring about a freedom of the captives, oil of joy for the morning, right? A, a garment of praise for the spirit of despair. Like they're longing for this and longing for this and Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he's like, today it's been fulfilled. And what is he saying? I am he. I am the one that has come to do all of these things. And the people wanted to stone him for it. They, matter of fact, they looked up and said, aren't you the son of the carpenter? Because you'll never effectively minister within the community you were brought up in. Like, and that's the thing to remember. You're looking at Jesus and he's, and he's reminding them, but one of the other reasons they were frustrating is he cut out the whole part where he said, the vengeance of the Lord will arise. He scroll, one of the reasons the Pharisees were angry was like, whoa, 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 what about our vengeance? What about, what about we have a reason to be angry. When are you gonna, you need to finish it because if you'll finish it, you'll read the part where God shows up on our behalf and smites all of our enemies. And Jesus says, he's actually not come to destroy all of them. He's come to save that which is lost. And the religious leaders are frustrated because we want vengeance our way. So if the image of the two options here is Christ, which is bringing the oil of joy for the morning and, all those things, or let's take them out because they double-crossed me. Which category do we usually fall in? Take them out. (laughs) I know which one I fall in. Y'all don't even got to answer it. 
So he's speaking to the Pharisees. And, and so listen, Jesus has great desires in the Beatitudes. And I, want to sh- I would just want to give you some of the things that Jesus is aiming to accomplish when he's speaking to them. First of all, he wants to cause the hearers to long for what is coming in the kingdom of God. Again, he wants to cause the hearers to long for what is coming in the kingdom of God. He, wa- he wants to stir in them an anticipation for what's coming in the kingdom of God, right? What is, what is he preaching along with John in the desert, right? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We covered that two weeks ago. So he wants, the, he wants the hearers, he wants the crowd and the disciples to long for what's coming in the kingdom of God. The second thing is he wants to communicate them the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. So he's wanting to reveal to them, I am the one that you've been waiting for. And so he wants to reveal to them the prophecy of Isaiah. And the third thing is that our longing and desire shouldn't be our removal of circumstances, but God's presence in the middle of them. The third thing that God, that Jesus wants us to understand is we are blessed, not, we, we do not identify the fact that we are blessed by our removal from our mourning, but that God is with us in our mourning. He wants us to see that we are not blessed because God removes us from being poor in spirit, but we are blessed because we are poor in spirit. What Jesus is about to help us identify is it is not the removal of your painful situations that cause you to be blessed. Matter of fact, your painful situations are a constant reminder that you're right where you're supposed to be. How incredibly frustrating. And I want, we're going to dive into the Beatitudes and look at what it is he has to say. And, and just to help with you, First Peter 2, 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What does that mean? Follow in his steps, follow in his suffering. First Peter 4, 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So you're supposed to participate in the sufferings and rejoice when you do it. Philippians 3, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul is writing in Philippians that the greatest thing you could attain to is that you would suffer like Christ, die like Christ, and experience the glory of Christ. Is that what the Western church preaches? Right? That, is, that is what is being communicated. Romans 8, 19 through 23. And, and this is Paul describing how the earth is going to hell in a handbasket, essentially. And so Paul is describing that what you're feeling in creation, what you're experiencing as the world is going wrong, when you're watching the news or social media and another bad thing has happened and another bad thing has happened, what Paul describes in Romans 8 is what we're feeling as we look at how the world is going. And he says, for the Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation, earth, humanity, everything, the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly in your spirit, in your psyche, in your emotions, in your frustrations, in your pain, in the prayers that you pray in the midnight hour when you're soaked your carpet in tears. We groan inwardly while we wait for adoption the redemption of our bodies, which is in glory with Christ. So, so what does it mean to have proper theology? Matt Chandler in your notes says, all of us want Pauline theology, but we don't want to experience Pauline pain. But John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in this world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So as we get into the Beatitudes, that was just the runway. As we get, as we get into the Beatitudes, what, is, what are we gonna see from Jesus? All right, so let's go back. What are, the, what are the things that Jesus wants us to see? One, that our heart should resonate with the kingdom of God, not with the kingdom of earth. Two, he is who he says he is. 
He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. And lastly, that our desire and our mind should not be fixed on what happens in this earth, but it should be fixed on what glory is waiting for us. That our minds and our hearts and our emotions and even our frustrations and our pain should cause us to long for the ultimate destination that awaits us, which is an eternity in heaven for those who believe in Jesus. So we should be longing for that. And if we're longing for, if we're longing for that, then we can understand what he's about to say. If you have no longing for heaven and if you have made an idol of this life more than you are anxiously awaiting glory with Jesus, you will struggle with the Beatitudes. But for those of us who have had our posture turned from the crowd to the circle and we sit there and say, Jesus, I'll give it all up if I can have you. If that is us, then we can embrace the Beatitudes. So let's go. Verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's read that together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what, is, what do we mean by poor in spirit? Meaning, what he means by poor in spirit is you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to give. Matter of fact, when we, when we look at Isaiah and he says, when he says, I, I've come for the poor, he, he's literally talking about the Jewish people in the, in, in the book of Isaiah because he's speaking to the Jewish people. He's making a promise in their context. So again, Old Testament is for the Jews, for the Israelites. And so Isaiah is within his own knowledge is communicating to the Jews, to the Israelites that those of you who are poor, you will become rich when the king arrives. What Isaiah doesn't quite know and what Jesus ultimately comes to reveal is it's not your lack of land that makes you poor. It's your lack of Christ. And so when Jesus shows up, he says, I've come to take the spiritually poor. And what does it mean that you're spiritually poor? The, those that are spiritually poor, meaning they have nothing to provide for what they will receive. Think about what it means to be poor for a second, right? It doesn't matter how badly you want something, you can't afford it, right? So if you're poor, you, you, you boil your life down to absolute necessities. And if you're truly poor, you don't have any money, so you can't wager or you can't buy anything. And so if you're truly poor, you have nothing to offer someone to give you the thing that you need. And what Jesus is saying is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer me for what I'm about to give them, because for for them, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So for us who realize that we are poor in spirit, we come to God going, God, I've got nothing to give you. I have nothing. I, I, I don't have anything I can offer. I don't, there's no good deeds that are worth my eternity. I can't, I can't do enough good works. I can't perform enough good things. I can't live a righteous enough life. I can't go to church enough. I can't read my Bible enough. I can't pray enough that I would be worthy to stand before you as sinless. So I'm poor because I don't have anything to offer you. But if I had something to offer you that could be worthy, I would give it. But I'm poor and I have nothing to offer. And since I have nothing to offer, I need you to give me what I could never afford. I'm poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit because those who are poor in spirit have realized they don't need to offer me anything anyways because grace is a free gift. And that is why they realize they have nothing in this life that they can contribute to receiving the kingdom of heaven. They have afflicted their souls Meaning that we have, we've humbled ourselves, we've searched our inward hearts, and we've recognized the evil nature of our own desires. We've recognized that on our best day, we are not one one thousandth of a percent worthy to stand before a holy God. We are poor in spirit. With deep contrition, with a, with a deep inward aching and realization of our lack of righteousness. We repent to a holy God saying, if there's anything you can do and God responds to us with grace because we come to the King helpless and hopeless as sinners needing a savior. We're free from our own pretensions, our own good works, our own ability to save ourselves, And so if we are going to experience God, we are gonna to have to lay down our own self-righteousness, 
We're going to have to lay down all of our good works. We're going to have to lay down all the things that we think should get us in. We have to stop leveraging it against the holy God, thinking because we did a few things better than the person that may be standing next to us, that we deserve something better than the person that's standing next to us. No, we lay it all down. To be spiritually poor means you have nothing to trade. Not that you have a little bit to trade, and it's a good thing you have more than that person does to trade. No, no, no. no. Spiritually poor means you have nothing to trade for the grace that has been given to you. That's why when we sing the song Gratitude and we get to the bridge, I cry every time. Or the chorus, I mean, he says, so I throw up my hands and praise you again and again because all that I have is a hallelujah. I know it's not much, but I've got nothing else fit for a king except for a heart singing hallelujah. Isaiah 61, one through three, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. This is what Jesus is fulfilling. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to who? Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. He's preaching And what he's saying is the fulfillment of who he came to be. And who he came to be is the fulfillment of what was promised generations past. So what is the steps to getting there? Step one, if you're you're here tonight and and your life does not belong to Jesus, maybe you're in the crowd but not in the circle, let me help you right now with what it takes to be spiritually poor. I'm inviting you into spiritual poverty right now. The first thing Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that not only is Jesus Lord, but that you have nothing to offer him, but you're willing to receive grace as a free gift. You have nothing to present. All of your good works are as filthy rags. You have no righteousness and you need a savior. And Jesus is the only savior. The second thing we can do not to save ourselves, but to be spiritually poor. It's to not humble ourselves in spiritual poorness or poverty, but then after we receive grace, become self-reliant and self-sufficient. But to wake up every day and pursue the good works because we are saved and we are blessed and we will inherit the kingdom of heaven, not so that we can inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what can we do to maintain our spiritual poverty, if you will? This is not an encouraging part of the message. I'm just realizing this right now. Uh, in my office, I was like, yeah! Now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, hmm, yeah. No. Uh, is that we would never get to the place where we feel like we have something to offer a righteous, holy God. We would always maintain a posture. Thank you, God. There's a song by a band called Gable Price and Friends. There's a song called Underdressed. And in the bridge of this song is so powerful to me. As a matter of fact, uh, I, was, I was recently working on a project for my wife, one of many. And, uh, and I was in the, in the sunroom of our house and I was listening to music as I was working and it got to this part and I just began to weep just began to weep as the ever-present reminder of my own failures before a holy God set in while being simultaneously embraced by that same God. He says, I'm feasting with a king who left his throne for me, enthroned upon my praises and clothed in majesty. He is holy and I am underdressed. I'm feasting with the king who left his throne for me. Forgiveness isn't fair, but it's my reality. He is holy, and I am underdressed. To become spiritually rich 
you will need to recognize that you are spiritually poor. And that is what Jesus was saying when he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. But I love the second half of that because blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does it say? For theirs is. Now, just take a look real quick at Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Just scan it real quick with your own eyes. What, is, what does every one of those say? Blessed are blah, 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 for they what? Shall. The only one, for the most part, there's one more, but it means something different. The only, the only part of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who are spiritually poor and have recognized their need for God because for them is the kingdom of God. In other words, you actually already have what you need to experience it. Everything else is future tense. But for those who are spiritually poor and who have come to Christ and walk in grace, you already belong to the kingdom of God. So theirs is the kingdom. What Christ came to do in them is complete and their belonging is established. In other words, the work has already been done for them. They do not have to continue to do work to obtain it. Now what I'm inviting you to question for just a moment is if the work according to what Christ is laying out here, if the work has been done and the prophecy has been fulfilled and the grace has been applied, do we need to continue to live in a lifestyle where we're trying to continue to earn that grace or do we rest in the grace that's already been given to us? Now, some will start to call this conversation like a once saved, always saved mentality. And I'm not trying to force you to believe anything as much as I'm inviting you into this space where you start to understand perhaps your Christianity is one to be rested in and not worked for. Verse four. <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will or shall be comforted. But I think it's so interesting because mourning is established in loss. Like to truly understand mourning, you truly have to lose something, right? Has anyone ever, anyone ever lost something significant and then someone came to you complaining about something they had lost, but it didn't matter? Like, can we all be real for a second? Like maybe some of you lost a family member, something like that. I remember when, when our son Jabin died, um, you know, that I, I was worthless in counselings for like six months because people would come to me and they're like, I just don't know how we're going to make it because one of our cars broke down and we only have one more. And I'm like, this is not a problem. Like, you have no real problems. Shut up and get out of my office. Because <laughs> like, like in, in that moment, I was mourning true loss. Yeah. Now, it, was their pain real? Yeah. Yes. Were they having to experience what they were experiencing, yes. Was it inconvenient? Yes. Was it their reality? Yes. So do they need help? Yes. I just was not the guy to give it. Right? Especially like when the, later in the conversation, they're like, well, you know, we like skipped three oil changes. I'm like, get out of my office. <laughs> this is a byproduct of your decision-making, not the devil. Stop trying to cast the devil out of your engine. Mourning is established in loss. Y'all think I'm joking. These are real, th are Rick, are these not real things? These things happen. You guys think we're joking. This is going to ministry, they said. It's a trap. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so Isaiah 61. 
Isaiah 61, one through three, let's go back. Again, we're, we're trying to reveal to you that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. And what? To comfort all who mourn. So let me help you understand authentic Christian mourning for just a second. Because mourning, it's twofold. One, we mourn the losses and sadness of this life. So death causes us to mourn. Uh, when we lose anything that's very valuable to us, if, if you've ever um, <clears throat> lost a relationship, uh, if you've lost a child, even if you've lost a parent, um, it, it, it's so interesting how even the natural order of things still causes us to mourn. We know that if all things go right, our parents will pass before us, yes. right? Like that is a reality for us. Yet when they pass, we, we still mourn, right? And, and, and that, that is a perfect analogy to reveal to us why Christian mourning sets in. The first reason that Christian mourning sets in is because we mourn loss and we mourn sadness, we mourn sadness in our lives because we miss what was once here, right? But then the second thing that we mourn is we actually mourn the sin that has caused the loss. Now, let me be very clear what I mean by that. Because some of us come from camps where the reason that person died is because they had sin in their life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a religious spirit. And anyone that tells you that Cast the devil out of their engine. I'm just kidding. Like, like, but in all seriousness, like, that, that, is, that is not the gospel that Jesus preached. Matter of fact, the New Testament says that Jesus came to break every curse, which means the curse of our sin. And then I can prove it to you again. We don't even have time. For it. I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, that when the disciples were walking with Jesus and they came across the, the, the blind man, yeah, they, they said, why is he like this? Was that lame man or blind man? Now I'm forgetting. doesn't matter. Why is he like this? And they said, and Jesus looked at him, and they said, is it because of the sins of him or the sins of his father? And he said, neither. He is like this so that my father in heaven will be glorified in him. So, so we, have to, we have to channel back to the sovereignty of God in all things. If something is happening, even the things we don't like, it is moving in the ways that God has ordained it to move so that he would get the most glory. And if it causes us pain, then it causes us pain. But our, our glory, the glory we're supposed to experience is not supposed to be on earth. That is why we mourn. We mourn the loss, but then we also mourn the sin that has caused the loss. What is the sin that caused the loss? Not your sin or their sin. It's Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, he set into the cosmos and for all creation after that, a sinful state that we live in. And the sinful state that we live in on earth, the ramifications of the sinful state that we all exist in is death. That is why when Jesus came, he came to defeat it. So, the, so we mourn the loss, but we also mourn because sin exists in the world. So we have to recognize that. And Jesus is communicating to his disciples that, that there is comfort in our mourning. But listen, the mourning, the mourning that stirs in our soul, the mourning that we experience in loss, the mourning that we go through when someone we love dearly dies, the mourning that we go through when when anything sets into our hearts that, that causes us to be frustrated or hurt, listen, mourning should move us to longing, not to despair. And what I mean by this, mourning should move us to longing. In other words, mourning on the earth should cause us to look forward to the day when it is no longer necessary. And where is it no longer necessary? when we're with Christ. So our mourning is a reminder that everything's not right. And for those who are in the circle, not just in the crowd, we have our eyes fixed on something better than this world. So we don't mourn. As a matter of fact, so, well, so, so 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10, Paul, that's why Paul is saying this. And now that you're understanding the Beatitudes, you can look at what Paul writes constantly and go, my God, Paul's quoting Jesus. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. 
perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. See, they, they have a reality. Paul knew, Peter knew, Jesus knew that death does not have the final victory in our lives. And when we mourn the loss, we, we should mourn the loss. There's nothing more present than the reality that someone has gone from this world while we still remain here. Jesus mourned the loss, right? So we understand mourning. Mourning is biblical. It's okay. To, weeping may endure for the night. But joy comes in the morning. So mourning is a biblical process. And for people that come to you and try to move you too quickly through your mourning, when you're in the middle of loss, you need to tell them to go somewhere else. It is okay to weep. Let your weeping cause you to long for the greater moment where tears no longer exist. Let the weeping cause you to look forward to the day that you get to see Jesus face to face. Let the weeping sit into your bones until you go, Jesus, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I thank God it's not the end. Death is not final when our eternity is in Jesus' hands. And so it should stir up a longing in our hearts for what we're waiting for, not bring us to despair thinking that the end of this world is the end of life. The end of this world is just the end of this world. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the end of this world is not the end of all things. It is a graduation to the ultimate thing. And so we have to realize what he's come to do. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, brothers and sisters, we want you to know what happens to those who die. We don't want you to mourn as people do. They mourn because they don't have any hope, but we know that we have hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 18, it starts with this. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And Paul is saying in this passage that death has in all things, there's nothing else in this world that is more final than death. There is nothing else in this world that an exclamation point gets put on like death. Death is final. There is no coming back from that. You can come back from an eviction. You can come back from cancer. You can come back from a divorce. You can come back from bankruptcy. You can come back from a lot of things. You don't come back from death unless God himself does it in you. Death is final. What Paul is saying is death, where is the sting of your finality? Because your finality stands no chance against the eternity that sits in Jesus' hands. God, I wish the, the American church would grab a hold of this reality and stop trying to build earthly kingdoms if we would realize that the ultimate kingdom that waits for us is not of this world but it's in heaven. How could we as Christians process death differently if we embrace the reality that this world is not our home? We're just pilgrims passing through this land. We were not created for death. We were not created for this world. We were created for an eternal communion with God. And in eternal communion, God, there is no more crying. That's why Revelation 21, 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. And all that we have left is glory with our creator, God himself. So our comfort comes in the midst of our mourning. Our comfort does not exist to remove us from the circumstances of mourning. Our comfort comes in the midst of our mourning. We are not comforted knowing that God is going to take away all of our pain. We are comforted knowing that in the middle of our pain, God will show up. We are not comforted in knowing that, that you will not have to cry another tear on this earth. You will cry tears. You will lose loved ones. People will die. Earthquakes will continue to happen. Famines will continue to happen. The worst of the worst on this earth will continue to happen. And every single one of them are supposed to stir something in you to go, I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. And more importantly, I can't wait to take someone with me. The death of your loved one is supposed to remind you how close it is for everyone else. The death of those you care for is supposed to remind you that it's coming for your coworker as well. And if they don't have Christ, they will go to hell. Death, the finality of death is there to remind you that you do have work to do. And man, I, you know, there's, there's 1,100 to 1,200 people that walk through our doors on a Sunday morning. There's 200 to 300 people that watch us every Sunday online. But I'm not getting fooled by the crowd. My job is to develop the circle. 
and praise God for that. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it, it is an honor to be part of a church that's growing the way it is. And many of you have joined in the last year or so. And I'm, 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 man, I'm so honored. I just... But I think we just have to stop caring about the crowd if we're not caring about the circle. We just have to stop basing our successes on bigger crowds if we're not building bigger circles. And we've worked diligently, and we're still working diligently. And Pastor Rick is freaking phenomenal, man. He's, he's, he's taking the impossible and making it possible, which is all my ludicrous ideas. But we sat in an office this past year, and I just told him, I said, I'm just not, I'm not happy. And he thought I meant with him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> I realized that I need to be more careful with my words. I said, uh, I said I'm not happy. And he, he said, what do I need to do? And I said, I'm not talking about you. I'm not happy with the rate at which the people joining our church are joining a journey with Christ in discipleship. Like, I'm not, I'm not happy. And, like, that's, the fresh, that's, like, the hard tension of our job is to, like, yay, our church is growing. And then you're, like, looking at small groups, and you're like, oh, God, we still got work to do. <laughs> you know, it's like the percentages are off. And so we sat down this past year, and we built a discipleship model that we can try every person that will be part of Transformation Church, and we have your information, we're going to track your journey with Christ. And we have six things, according to the Bible, that we believe if you're doing all six of these things, you are in a healthy, Christ-centered journey. And we can track all of them. So if you get a phone call from us, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. We're not <laughs> Next small group season, y'all better. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, but, I, but we can't. We, we will be able to monitor where you are in your discipleship journey. And when you call in asking for marriage counseling, and we go into the database and we see that you and your spouse have not joined a single marriage group, but you've been going through problems for the last three years, we are going to ask questions. It's not that we're not going to help you. We will help you. Yeah. But it, we need you to help yourself. Pastor Dan, he's not here tonight because he's, he's dealing with some back problems, but um, he's, he's doing a lot of marriage counseling right now. Part of it's my fault from the message I preached on Sunday. But, <laughs> uh, but he's dealing with a lot of marriage counseling. But here's the deal. A lot of the people he's counseling in marriage are like, yeah, we've been dealing with this for two years. But I know for a fact the Bodies hosted a marriage small group last season, and I went to look. I said, I want to know. Were they in the small group? No. So you knew the problem, you just didn't want to do anything about it. Now, I don't say that to try to beat anybody up, for the record. That's not my goal here. I'm not trying to make you feel bad or guilty. What I'm trying to do is expose to you that if you are part of the crowd where you are comfortable with your dysfunction, come get in the circle. Become discipled. Join the journey. Jesus needs to be the whole thing, not just the side thing. Like, do that. Let it become part of the life that you're pursuing. Um, because it is only then that you can truly understand what, what Jesus is trying to accomplish in your life, like what, what he ultimately wants for you. And for the record, that's the only way that your mourning is comforted. And I think that that's what I'm, I'm getting at as we close out. We made it to verse 4. Praise God. Um, <laughs> But that's my, my hope as we wrap up tonight is that you would realize that there is a difference between the crowd and the circle. And more importantly, that you would have a longing for the crowd and, and, and that the three things that we talked about earlier would become very real to you. The three things that we brought to you at the very beginning that you're, you should have a longing for the kingdom of God. Not just to know Jesus as your savior, but to belong to the kingdom of God. And here's the important thing about a kingdom. It does have a king. And he rules and he reigns. That Jesus 
fulfills all the promises ever made by God. He is the fulfillment. So if God made you a promise that you would be blessed and highly favored, you are that in Christ. And the third thing is that you would embrace a journey with Jesus and a discipleship model that causes you to long for eternity, a longing for heaven, a longing for where Jesus is, so much so that the things of this world pale in comparison to them. That it would stir our affections and our heart. And that everything we encounter in this world is just one more thing we encounter in this world till we get where we're going. And that was the greatest clarity God ever, ever gave me in the passing of our son. As people ask me now, how do you endure? How, what, what do you think about? How does that go? And my answer to them is this. The only thing that stands between me and seeing my son again is the people God has for me to reach Jesus, reach for Jesus in the process. Once my job is done, he's going to take me home. Right? And I know y'all are going to cry over me. No, I'm just kidding. But in all reality, in all reality, like, once my job is done, Jesus, take me home. So where is my mind? On eternity. So you can ask my wife. She would tell you, I don't care about, I don't care about this life. I care about it so little it would bug some of you. Like, my wife is a financial person. She's the one, like, you know, bills and stuff like that. And she's like, well, what about this? And I'm like, ah, whatever. I'm like, I tell, I'm, I'm trying to get her to quit her job right now. All right? And it's not because I make a ton of money. It's just because I'm like, just quit your job. Like, come home. She's like, we'd be losing this much money a month. I'm like, ah, whatever. <laughs> like, I just, like, I just don't, you know, she's like, we won't be able to do this and do this and do this. I'm like, don't care. You know, uh, like, I just, uh, I'm, I'm so unbought, you know what I mean? Things happen in this world. I'm like, ah, that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, I just, and things, you know, and perhaps maybe in an unhealthy way sometimes, like I'll self-assess. I'm willing to say that. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I should be bothered by things more. The only thing I care about is reaching people for Jesus. So my job is done and go in to see in Jesus face to face and hold my boy again. Those are the only things that matter to me. I don't care about anything else. And I think I'm not necessarily saying you have to buy into that mentality completely, but I think there's a longing for eternity that has to set into your heart to be part of the circle where Jesus is the greatest thing. Even more than heaven, Jesus is your desire. And that's what it means to, to be in the circle. We'll pick up on verse five and maybe we'll get through like eight next month. So <laughs> let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we're, we're just, we're so grateful for your word. God, I pray that tonight that each one of us can see and realize all the ways in which <laughs> your word just confirms it spell, itself and it speaks life. And it helps us overcome the situations of this life and the things of this world, and we would just have our minds fixed on you. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer a king, but you give us grace anyways. Blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. And thank you, God, that you bring comfort into our mourning, that we could long for eternity. We thank you for it tonight. Encourage our hearts to realize that everything in this world is built to cause us to look to you in a greater way and lead more people to you. Bring us out of the crowd and into the circle. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a good night.